G'day, mate. Luke Ford here, keeping an eye on the news. Matt Gates is making his move to become the Speaker of the House. The Republicans only have a narrow, narrow majority in the House of Representatives. So far, it doesn't look like uh, Republicans are doing a great job of governing. It seems like they're much more interested in making a spectacle of themselves than doing the hard work of of governing. They don't exactly seem like the adults in the room, but uh, who knows? Maybe Matt Gaetz has hidden talents, hidden powers. On the other hand, maybe he's reaching for a level of visibility that's just not good for him, all right? I love the the motto, bringing souls out of hiding. There's one 12-step program that I go to that has that motto, bringing souls out of hiding. That's often the, the motto behind... Uh, under owning 12-step programs but uh, not everyone is equally you know cut out for leadership all right not everyone's equally cut out for all levels of visibility and so will Matt Gates raise rise to the occasion or will he fall apart keep an eye on that and uh, I've been listening to a lot of if books could kill really enjoy this podcast couple of lefties here and they do a Patreon special on Barry Weiss's terrible Substack. Fans know I was recently fired <laughs> for speaking my truth <laughs> because my employers found out about my other podcast. And I recall when HR sat me down and they said, Peter, you're the best looking guy here and you're the smartest person we've ever met. <laughs> but we still have to let you go due to cancel culture. The funny thing is, Peter, you're actually like a better free speech martyr than this lady is. I knew that this would happen. You know, I got fired. Uh, like Vulture wrote a thing uh, about um, me getting fired in like their podcasting section. Thanks, Nick. No one reached out to me yeah. to be like, hey, you heard you were canceled. We're going to give you a uh, half a page in the Times or whatever. Right. These fucking people build entire careers off of this, off of being a brand executive, right? Like you're the management of the Levi's brand is her job. Yeah. And she's appearing on Fox News shows to take controversial positions about COVID restrictions. Right. And the company steps in and says like, well, (laughs) obviously we don't want people who are associated with Levi's, like, taking controversial positions on extremely high-profile television shows, that's a brand issue. You're the head of brand. Part of your job. These stories are, like, the heart of the cancel culture panic in this country. And what makes them effective is that there is a truth to them, right? Companies do not want their senior executives going around on Fox News and saying controversial shit. That is true. But a couple things. One, this is not a phenomenon of the left, and that is the implication both here and throughout Barry Weiss's work, right? That this is something that she is being punished for only because she questioned certain liberal orthodoxies. There are plenty of left of center positions that will get you into hot water in the same way, right? If you criticize the military, the police, Israel, all of these are similarly controversial. If you have a podcast about the Supreme Court, (laughs) for example, yeah, (laughs) in my experience, that'll get you fired almost 100% of the time. You know, the idea that you can just say whatever from the left and be fine is ludicrous. Yeah. Well, there's also a lot of companies where like saying Black Lives Matter would get you fired. Mm-hmm. They're trying to exoticize what is effectively like a form of marketing. Like companies use political issues as marketing now. This is yep. nothing new. I don't love it, but it's just a phenomenon. Yep. I also think that it's like really dystopian and fucked up that like rank and file workers, like if you're an Amazon warehouse worker, you could mm-hmm. potentially get fired for tweeting something. Yep. But that's because it harms people who don't have as many other options and it could actually have stakes involved right and not to continuously circle back to my uh expertise in the supreme court Hmm. but there's a case burwell v hobby lobby where the court held that privately held companies can refuse to provide contraceptive coverage to their employees on religious grounds right even when required by law right companies have long had the ability to dictate material aspects of their employees lives and conservatives have always bolstered their ability to do it. Right. If they wanted to help build a world where the balance of power between workers and companies 
is shifted, they could, but they don't want to. Right. All they want to do is create a social climate that favors them, right. that allows them to be vocal and insulates them from criticism. That's what this woman is trying to do, right? Right. She's not saying I support laws that would allow employees to have freedom of speech and put that limit on at-will employment. No, the right is never going to take that fucking position. Never. Well, this is the thing is if you looked at the history of this Substack and the last 10 posts were Barry Weiss talking about union organizers being fired and like teachers who wore Black Lives Matter pins on Zoom and got fired and in there she mentioned, hey, I'm also not wild about this case at Levi's. Yeah. If it's part of a tapestry, I feel like I would actually yes. accept somebody being like, I'm not super comfortable with the way that this happened. Fine. But this clearly is not Barry Weiss's project because overall, if you zoom out, it's only people suffering consequences for conservative speech. Yes. Years ago, I saw an interview with a CEO. He said, the first thing you lose when you gain power in a company is the ability to think out loud. If you are the CEO of a company and you're asked on a panel or something like, hey, should we move our operations to Cleveland? You're like, oh yeah, that 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 could be interesting. Yeah, we should look into that. Mm-hmm. Well, people are going to upend their lives. Your stock is going to jump all over the place. People are going to think, oh my God, can my wife get a job if I have to move to Cleveland? So you have to be really careful when you speak if you are someone whose words affect other people. Right. And I feel like this whole cancel culture, like from the top down, view that Barry Weiss takes, right, where she only is interested in, like, magazine editors and CEOs and people with all of this societally recognized power being canceled from below, right, being canceled by people who they have power over is just this complete misunderstanding of how free speech and how power works in America. They don't want to have to trade anything off for money and power. Right. It's also so funny, too, like, for people like us to be, like, talking about these cases, because, like, We both have podcasts. There are Mm -hmm. certain things that I also cannot say publicly. Mm -hmm. This is part of being a public figure. I don't love it. You're right. I get just like, why why do I have to deal with this? But also, I'm a person with a moderately successful podcast who gets to affect other people's opinions on things. And part of the responsibility of that is you can't just say fucking anything anymore. Right. It's part of the deal. And it it can be annoying, but everyone knows that that's part of the deal. And the people who complain about it are the fucking worst. The fucking worst. (laughs) I think it's... I mean, these are great points from the left. The more power you have, the more visibility you have, the bigger the audience, the more influential your audience, the more prestigious, the higher the status your position in life, the more vulnerable you are to cancellation. So a college professor is much more vulnerable than a plumber, right? A TV news anchor is much more vulnerable to cancellation than a, than a gardener. So with great power, right, you have to be more and more careful about what you say and do. I, I just thought that was just excellent common sense there coming from the left. A couple of lefties on the If Books Could Kill podcast and uh, the, the host, all right, he, he got fired from a major law firm because on the side he was doing a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court and they caught him in and they got rid of him. All right, I loved this little message about the pitfalls of the spiritual bypass. I was listening to this this morning prompting my live stream about nine hours ago. do a lot of these things and we need to open ourselves up to learning. So let me talk a little bit about what's happened Why didn't this become the spearhead of the next major development in the program? Well, I think... So he's talking about a letter by Bill Wilson written in 1958 who says 12-step should move its next priority to emotional sobriety. I think that there's a tendency in recovery for us to use spiritual bypassing to cope with our personal issues rather than walking through the hell gates of suffering. That's the word that didn't get on there, the hell gates of suffering. Well, what is spiritual bypassing? Well, it was really defined by this psychiatrist, John Wellwood, and this is how he described it. He says there is a tendency to use spiritual practice to try to rise above our emotional and personal issues. All those messy, unresolved matters that weigh us down. He says, I call this tendency to avoid or prematurely transcend basic human needs, feelings, and developmental tasks as spiritual bypassing. Now, where that's relevant today is I hope you guys listened to that set-aside prayer when we started. 
because this part of recovery is going to mean facing ourselves and getting real honest with ourselves. Now, there's good news. I think only the best in us can see the worst in us. And I'll say that again. I think only the best in us can see the worst in us. But we have to be willing to be uncomfortable if we're going to become more comfortable. We have to be willing to move into these areas where we're ignorant and where and to own our ignorance and face our ignorance if we're going to develop some new ideas, some new skills, if we're going to get some new knowledge. And so let's look at what the definition of humility is. And I think that this is important. This is from the American Psychological Association. Okay, I just love that point about people seeking like a spiritual bypass or a religious bypass or whatever kick they're on, the, the you know, HBD bypass or right-wing politics or left-wing politics uh, bypass. The world is so confusing. There are just so many options and choices. It's bewildering and exhausting, and it's so tempting to think that we can just have this magic key that we can just you know bypass the hard work of internal rearrangement we can just bypass that with with uh, you know cold water or you know the wim hof method or you know just a new 12 step program right great doco here on the rise and fall of the wim hof empire i was empire. practicing the wim hof method uh, ended up having a hypoxic blackout underwater no life support for 4 weeks when he did pass out under the water and no one noticed about approximately 30 minutes later that he was found. And he was in like a, um, a meditative position underwater, hearts beating, but you know, there was no brain activities. He was sure enough a goner. Anybody taking Wim's work and going into a pool and hyperventilating, you're just playing roulette. There is no amount of money that can truly compensate for the death of a child, but this is a $67 million case. There's nobody in that organization currently that understands the physiology. I don't think they have a grasp on it. Orders do not talk to the press. People could have died. People have died. I never wanted to tell this story about Wim Hof. Instead. Okay, so, you know, many different approaches, many different people are wonderful in, in a certain degree, right? In a certain context. But when they get too big for their britches, when they take on the role of the, the, the all-seeing, all-knowing guru, when they think that they are no longer accountable to the ordinary rules of life, they get themselves and other people into trouble. For years, I've told you about how his breathwork and cold exposure techniques helped hundreds of thousands of people develop resilience and control their anxiety, depression, and autoimmune illnesses. This indomitable Iceman has amassed millions of devotees to his practices, myself included. In 2016, we climbed shirtless up Mount Kilimanjaro together while the temperature dipped to minus 30 degrees. I can honestly say that I love his method and think that Wim is one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. We've been good friends for a decade, primarily because he understood that I would always tell the truth no matter what. And that is why I feel so conflicted about what I'm about to tell you. Hey, he's talking about all the what dangers to the about Wim Hof method. Is a comfortable myth. It is a story that recounts all of the most... We love comfortable myths. That uh, 12 step will solve our problems, religion will solve our problems, that Alexander technique will solve our problems, that politics will solve our problems, that psychotherapy will solve our problems. We all love to cling to you know, one particular story, one particular narrative, when the world is far too complex for any one narrative or any one method for making sense of the big buzzing confusion surrounding us. Amazing things about the Iceman and his methods at the same time that it masks underlying problems within his organization and Wim's own meteoric rise into the limelight. After 10 years practicing his method and writing numerous articles and books that contributed to that myth, I've come to the inescapable conclusion. A lot of things are great in moderation. A lot of things are great in certain situations, but you can take them too far. Like water is great. But you can certainly drink too much water. Exercise is great. 
but you can exercise too much or too hard. And uh, Wim Hof Method, all right, many benefits to it, but it can also kill you. That it's time for me to report the full truth about how neglectful and deceptive activities at Wim Hof's organization Inner Fire, as well as what I believe is Wim's own culpability, repeatedly teaching a dangerous breathwork technique that has now led to the suspected deaths of at least 12 people. This story is complicated, but the most important... Okay, terrific uh, little doco here, the rise and fall of the Wim Hof method, but I know you want to talk Talmud, so let's talk Talmud here. Professor of modern Jewish thought, Mark Shapiro, letters from the Rav, meaning Rav Joseph Bear Soloveitchik. Obviously for women, I showed you the famous picture of him um, with uh, Rabbi Saul Berman and Rabbi Willig. Uh, one of you wrote me that, uh, and I had already seen this, that Rabbi Willig actually taught the first uh, Talmud shir uh, for the women. I mean, he was the, the Rebbe. Uh, the Rav gave that uh, famous introductory Talmud shir. So let's see what the Rav... Um, Rob's reply was. But before I get to that, I want to show you something. I picked this up at YU in April of this year. Headline of the commentator, three Talmud courses on Barron campus canceled for next year. And it's it begins, the Stern College for Women Jewish Studies Department will not be offering introductory intermediate Talmud next semester due to low enrollment. And, uh, and, and basically, uh, for all this uh, stress on how it's so vital for uh, women to have access to Talmud study, there, there doesn't seem to be much interest at Stern. Uh, the uh, the standard it says here is a minimum of eight students for a course. Right, so there's all this uh, emphasis on on <laughs> Talmud study, okay, but but uh, women don't actually want to engage in it. Of course, and yet uh, they couldn't get that. In fact, uh, there was even much lower than that in some of them. Um, I think one of them even had uh, it said. Uh, so this guy here, he won't mute his mic, so it's wrecking the show for everyone else. All right, one person can just disrupt a, an entire synagogue, an entire live stream, an entire highway, all right, just through your own selfishness and carelessness, lack of consideration for other people. This guy who intermittently shows up here because his mic is unmuted, all right, he's just, you know, wrecking the show for everyone else. Um, no one registered for it, if I recall. Um, um... Yeah, it says that uh, zero applicants for the second Talmud track. That's for, uh, um, for I think, for GPATs. And uh, so basically, uh, it shows that it's not of that great interest. So I don't know what you make of that. But something like YU, you'd think they would offer it anyway because it's uh, it's part of the ethos of what Yeshiva University is. And there was a backlash. Right. So Yeshiva University is a modern Orthodox synagogue. And so they have taken on many modern values, such as egalitarianism. And they try to apply that everywhere they can in within the strictures of Orthodox Judaism. And traditional Orthodox Judaism, you know, makes pretty dramatic distinctions between men and women. So one of my most common critiques of modern Orthodox Judaism is that it's usually neither modern nor Orthodox. It's a mess. And they, uh, they retracted the... Uh... The, the statement that they were going to cancel these courses. I don't know how many students are in it, but uh, they're, uh, at least what I read is that, that they're uh, going ahead with that. So uh, they're going against nature, right? It is not the nature of 99.9% .9 of Orthodox Jewish women to deeply immerse themselves in study of Talmud. But they, they have this, this ideological commitment that uh, they're, you know, they're determined to, to push, even though. Uh, you know, reality rejects them. Right, a lot of good stuff here in this talk from Mark Shapiro, I think September 19th. That in our new era, where it's not the Rambam's day, we're not dealing with the Taliban-like society. Obviously, Judaism is not a... Okay, so the Rambam refers to Maimonides, who died around year 1204 of the Common Era. Absorbed uh, just by uh, mother's milk or anything like that. So uh, what are you supposed to do? So the Chavitayim already dealt with this when he said that in our era, we need to teach Torah. And the, and the Rav felt... Meaning teach Torah to women. That isn't just teaching Torah. The Rav felt that you have to go further. And the Rav felt that you have to teach um, Talmud as well. So what, what does the answer say here? Uh, beginning on page 85, sorry, 81, um, that we went through the question last time, he, he, he has two letters. The first letter is he doesn't want to reply... So these are Orthodox Jews who are taking on secular Goyesh values and trying to combine the best of, you know, secular Goyesh life with the best of traditional Orthodox Judaism. 
And the result is a watered-down, compromised form of Judaism, and not many people get excited about a compromise, which is where you don't find that many passionate Orthodox Jews. Also, modern Orthodox Jews overwhelmingly go to a secular university. The more secular education people have, right, the less religious they become. Now, an elite can combine an elite secular education with a religious education and still you know, lead a considerably educated life. But the more secular education you get and the more exposure you get to secular news media, the more you explain the world around you in secular terms. You explain their problems between people in social and psychological terms. You explain natural phenomenon in you know biological and geological terms. You don't attribute things to God. And there's a saying in the Talmud, the best of doctors go to hell. Why? Because they believe it's their medicine that cures people and not God. So the more religious the person, the more godly the person, the more likely he is to attribute you know, most of what goes on around him to God's will. The more you get secular explanations that are compelling, and more and more people, even Orthodox Jews, find secular explanations for what's going on in the world around them far more compelling than what uh, the traditional you know, God-centered explanations do. Why, unless they agree to accept what he says. He says he's worried that today we're in an era where um, there's so much um, partisanship. Some always want to liberalize the halacha, but others want to see the halacha fossilized. That's the word he used, and completely shut out of life. So the Rav is taking a middle-of-the-road position against the liberals on the left and against the, the more traditionalists on the right who fossilized the halacha, that just because something was, just because the Rambam said this, then it wouldn't change. The fact that reality has changed entirely today so let's say God delivered, you know, every word of the Torah at Mount Sinai 3,200 years ago, approximately. That does not mean that every single commandment or principle that he articulated 3,200 years ago is necessarily still binding on us today because situations change, right? When situations change, even if the ethic is eternal and immutable, the situation to which it must be applied has so sufficiently changed that uh, an ethic from 3,200 years ago, even if it comes from God, not necessarily the godly thing to do right now. We wouldn't make any changes. Uh, I mean, the said it's harasha, you have to do it. It's an emergency uh, time. So when Rabbi Rosenfeld said, we're going to listen to what you said, then the Rav replies, quote, today, today, not only is the teaching of Tarsha about Pep to girls permissible, but it's an absolute imperative. He says, the policy of discrimination between the sexes as to subject matter and method of instruction that certain people advocate in our community has contributed to the deterioration and downfall of traditional Judaism. He says boys and girls alike need to be introduced to the inner halls, not just the surface level, inner halls of Torah Shabbal Peh. So you can't get any... So Torah Shabbal Peh refers to the oral law, which is the repository, is the, the Talmud. So wonderful, beautiful sounding theories about how we need to teach women Talmud but in reality, women just are not interested in studying Talmud. So all these men are theorizing how beautiful it would be to teach Talmud to women, but women, doggone it, just not that interested, just not that into Talmud study. Yeah, he says, I'm going to prepare a halacha grief about this, but he uh, doesn't do this here. As far as I know, it never came about. So here we see the Rav, as strong as you can get, stating that today we need to, look, women are getting advanced educations at university. So there is an obligation in Judaism for the man to provide his woman with regular sex. There's no, there's not a similar obligation on the women to provide their man with regular sex. And so Reb Moshe Feinstein, probably the leading halakas, meaning decider of Orthodox Jewish law in America in the last uh, half of the 20th century, he ruled that because we live in a much more sexualized society, that uh, men were required to give their wives uh, twice as much sex as was previously expected from them. So I think it's something like uh, two or three times a month. Universities, BAs, graduate school, we can't keep, keep them at a high school, elementary school level in Torah study. And at the end of the day, women are smart. They realize if we know and we do know that the, the highest level of Yeah, women are smart, but they're not necessarily smart in exactly the same things as men, right? Men and women each have their different gifts and different interests and different abilities. Generally speaking, women are not interested in physics, in chemistry, in math, in Talmud. They're more interested in things that are alive, the, the life sciences, if they go into sciences. If they go into medicine, they want 
a, a medical position where they can simultaneously raise a family. Torah learning is Talmud. And we're letting them achieve advanced degrees in secular studies, and we're not letting them achieve advanced study in Torah. They're not going to take it uh, seriously. They're not going to, it's going to, they'll see it as a sign of disrespect to their intellect, who they are. It's going to have negative consequences. So uh, one of you emailed me about this and said, uh, knowing what I was going to say, but wait a second, didn't, what about the halacha? I just read the halacha, the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch says the same thing, that you can't do this. So, um, and especially if we go through by Wurzberger, that this isn't a B'diavad, Harad Shalom, the Chavitz but this is something that... B'diavad uh, means, I, I believe, before, and so before the situation comes up, not as a justification after you get into an uncomfortable situation. He sees as a, uh, as a positive. That is, the women today are in the status of when the days of the Rambam, that one in a million who'd be able to study, all our women have that level because all our women are given secular education. Now, assuming- Elliot Blatt notes in the chat, men are interested in things, women are interested in beings. Yeah, there, there's some great deal of generalizable truth there. I think that's uh, what he holds. How did, what do you do with the halakha? Well, the answer, of course, is that the halakha doesn't apply because the halakha is not talking about our women. The halakha, again, the Rambam never says that a woman can't study. He says you shouldn't teach them. Because there are many of them, most of them in his day, are not uh, suitable. They're not ready for it. They don't want it. The men, men are not suitable either. But there's a halacha. You have to teach men. It's, uh, they're obligated. The women are not obligated. But only a woman who shows that he's interested in it and takes the effort herself. Okay, she can study it. And she's exceptional. From the rough standpoint, he would say that all our women are exceptional in that sense, in that we all need to give them this education. And if you're still troubled by it, um, I want to share with you another source, an unusual source uh, that uh, I haven't seen anyone... Uh, in this matter, really deal with. I could have dealt with it when we dealt with reform. Because look, if you're going to tell me it's a halacha, and how do you... so it'd be funny if uh, Trump is brought down by his own horniness. That's uh, Richard Hanania's tweet here. Uh, Trump can't have a jury trial since his lawyer forgot to ask for one. Gee, I wonder what he saw in this graduate of Widner University Commonwealth Law School. What's more shakespearean than trump finally being brought down by his own horniness this man never stops entertaining so here he is with his lawyer justice just noted in court that nobody asked for a jury trial which is why he will be presiding over trump's 250 million dollar civil fraud case without a jury and there this is uh this is trump's choice for for a lawyer all right and uh i, I don't exactly think she got the position because of her, you know, legal smarts. You change halacha. Now, I don't buy it. I don't think it's halacha unchanging. I think halacha from day one always depended on the people, the women, the era. But let's assume you go with the more traditionalist perspective that uh, it's halacha and uh, you can't change the halacha. So uh, let me then tell you that uh, halacha refers to Jewish law. Its origins that come from. Mount Sinai, according to the Jewish tradition, so it's 3,200 years old, and supposedly it never changes, but it does frequently change. It's just that uh, it's presented as unchanging. Maybe this will put me in the camp of the reformers at the beginning, but wait till you see who I quote. I don't think I'll end up in the camp of the reformers. That Who says that all halachot are eternal? I know we're indoctrinated with this, that uh, halacha can't change, it's all eternal, it doesn't, but who says that? And I want to call your attention to something said by the Malvam. Malbum Mayor Lebesh Weiser, the Malbum, we know him as a great commentator on Nach, on, on Torah Tanach. Uh, but he, he was also at uh, a Halachic Scholar. Now, uh, there's a story actually of him and uh, uh, whatever. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Rav tells a story too, but it's, it's, uh, it's told by a number of, I, I found it online. I just searched for it. I found two versions of it. The story, the, 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 um, the Malbum wrote a say for Arts of Sahai, and that's a commentary on the first sections of the Shulchan Aruch. And he went to Pressburg. Um, we're going to be going to Pressburg this summer. Uh, you're all cordially invited. Um, and we'll talk a good deal about the Chassam Sofer when we're there. And he went and he got a Haskama from the Chassam Sofer, a very nice Haskama on the Sefer. There's two versions of the story. The, 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 the most popular version is as follows. And I, I found it for those who want to see it. I just found it. It's on many places. Uh, Mordechai Lifsen's Midor, Dor, volume four, page 236. So he comes to the Chassam Sofer. He, he begins it by saying, why did the Chassam Sofer cry on uh, Shabbos, every Shabbos? The story is as follows. When he was 18 years old, he wrote this book, Artis Achayim, and uh, it made him famous. He came to Pressburg. He was with the Chassam Sofer to get a Haskama on the book. And Chassam um, Sofer, as I said, spoke to him in learning, gave him the Haskama. So Haskama means a rabbinic approval, 
like a, a quote that you can put on a book that, you know, such and such rabbi says, this is a great book. Every Jewish household should have one. But he was there. Shabbos comes and it's getting dark. So he comes in uh, Shabbos afternoon. He comes into Shul and uh, it's hard to see. You you know, he didn't know his way around and uh, maybe I don't think there was a sign, whatever. He goes and he sits in the Chassam Sofer's uh, chair and he actually dozes off because they the community was reciting uh, Tehillim for about an hour. So to understand this, you 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 usually you enter a church and people welcome you. You you enter a synagogue, all right. You might be the only person you know seated in a synagogue, and someone will come over and you know and say, "Hey, you're sitting in my seat." People get very devoted, very dedicated, very used to a particular seat in in synagogue. It's not the happy clappy, friendly, welcoming place that uh, church often is. hour before they uh, would often. The Hassan Sofer comes in and he sees uh, him sitting in his chair and the Hassan Sofer goes and sits on the side. Uh, when my Riva starts and the um, the Shamas is making uh, Havdalah on the coast, the Malbam realizes that, wait a second, he's sitting in the Hassan Sofer's chair and he gets all uh, flustered and he jumps up and he wants, he moves away and he's being uh, a to uh, appease, I guess is the best word, the Hassan Sofer. And the Hassan Sofer said, no, no, you know, stay where you are. And the story is, from that moment, the Hassan Sofer stood where he is, that is, he stood where he is in learning, and he was never able to write um, any more halacha. He just couldn't reach that level. This is the explanation given why the why the Malbam never again wrote in halacha, and he had to go write in Nach, and that's why he would cry every Shabbos. I found a different version of this in a book called Otsar Yadus, volume 1, uh, page 597, where what he says is, uh, the way they read it is, stay, you stay where you are. So place is really important. Right, one of my favorite titles for a book is you know, "A Place for You." Right, we are different people in different places. All right, I'm a different person in Sydney, and San Francisco, and New York, and Washington D.C., and Paris, and London than I am in Los Angeles. Right, the concerns that I have in Los Angeles, I generally don't have in other places. Right, so the the location. Uh, the place, e even if it's just a, a chair, all right, can have a profound effect on us. Or, I mean, don't write any more of this safer. But the traditional story is that it's like a curse of sort, not that the Chassam meant it, but that the Malbam would not write any more halacha, and um, it just it was removed from him the ability. But he did write the Sefer Arts of Sahayim. And if you look in um, Simon Tess, Sif Katan Mem Aleph, he goes through numerous examples where. Halacha changes because the reality is not the same. Oh, no, we know some of them. We don't have. Right. So halacha, God's will, all right, you know, what is right, all right, that may be immutable and eternal, but the situation in which these immutable moral principles and laws have to be applied, you know, are frequently changing. You change the situation, right? You have to apply the ethic or the principle, you know, differently. And Melchizedomis anymore. So uh, we don't need to do, let's say, Mayim uh, He see, he gives a lot of examples where he says you don't need a Minyam Natirum. That is, normally when the, we, we spoke already in the previous semester, when the, uh, the Chazal make a decree, we need another Sanhedrin greater than them, or, uh, you know, uh, in number, or, um, in wisdom to uh, get rid of it. He gives examples where you don't have this. And he said, Question from the chat Luke, do you have no concern when using public restrooms? Well, I don't use them a great deal. But uh, some places have much nicer public restrooms than others. So I spent a lot of time in Beverly Hills, quite nice public restrooms. Other parts of LA, not nearly so nice. Uh, Australia, right, they have you know, quite plush public facilities compared to America. Says, uh, he says, Yimselameos. He says, you'll find hundreds of examples where times have changed and uh, you don't need it. And um, he says that only when they've um, told you that. Um, the, when it's clear that the Sanhedrin passed it, then you're stuck. But if it's just halacha, so for example, he says, what about, um, um, it says that you can't uh, dance on Shabbos because uh, you might, uh, we spoke about it. And then Tosha says, we're not experts in fixing a, uh, an instrument. And he gives, he gives lots of examples where you don't need, uh, uh, so what does he conclude? He says that for many halachot, he goes on, it goes on two pages, three pages on this. He quotes a different Rishonim because there's a lot of confusion. But his conclusion is, that when it's built into the halacha from the beginning, that it depends on the circumstance, then if circumstances change, the halacha by itself changes. When halacha is made a gezerah, like a Sanhedrin or the Rabbanan, just a Stam gezerah, by a Minyan, let's say, by the Sanhedrin. So I was 
talking to this uh, couple with ties to Japan, and they talked about how, oh, Japan absolutely can't increase its defense spending above 1% because that's in its constitution, that Japan can't do all these things that Japan needs to do to protect itself in an increasingly dangerous corner of the world because of the constitution that the Americans forced on them. And so Japanese have inherited a lot of passivity from losing World War II, having constitution foisted upon them and essentially acceding most of their self-defense over to the Americans. It's bred a passivity. And so too, many people have a passive attitude towards life. It's like, oh, it's the law, or I made a promise, or it's the constitution. Right? The constitution is not a death warrant. Right? Religious law, religious principles you know, are not death warrants. And so you have to have the sacral, the wisdom, to have to apply these, you know, eternal principles or you know, eternal edicts or constitutions, right? In, in ways that enable you to live rather than die, right? It says in the Talmud, in the Torah, right? God says, you know, I'm giving you these laws so that you live by them, right? So that you can live by them, not die by them, right? Be, don't be dying for your principles. Don't be dying for your constitution. Don't allow your, your people, your nation state, your community, you know, to die for abstract principles and constitutions. Sometimes, right, your interests are more important than abstract principles. And sometimes abstract principles should be more important to you than your interests. But what's vital to the interests of, of you and those you love and to your people, that should be a principle. That should be a guiding principle. That might even be the guiding principle, right? What is good for my people, right? That strikes me as a pretty darn good principle to live by. Or something like that. Then you need another Sanhedrin to get, change it. But if, listen to his language. I want to show you, uh, he says, uh, only when you know that there was an actual, like a decree from the Sanhedrin, um, then you need it, uh, but um, then you need another Sanhedrin. Of Adini Machiri, other laws. Also, other laws, all the run-of-the-mill laws you see in the Gemara that we all follow, and there's no reason to think. We don't know that they were, it was like a Sanhedrin made a Gezerah. Ain Sarich Minyan Latiram. You do not need a Sanhedrin uh, to do that. Again, Stam Dinim, I guess you could say. Um, Regular laws, where it just says in the Gemara that this is the halacha, he says that you could say, if the reason for it has gone away, then the Isra goes away. Now, this is very problematic, you might say, and it's going to be controversial. After all, the Vilna Gon says that just because, even when the Gemara gives a reason, just because it gives a reason, there could be other reasons. But I, the point is that uh, the the, the Malbim uh, sets forth this principle that, at least with many halachot, they're dependent on the time. So that fits in very well with the Ruff's position. In an era where women got no education, uh, this this is an issue. This could be a problem. That's the halacha. But now that it's a totally different era, the halacha doesn't apply anymore. And uh, not that it's a rashah or anything like the Havitz Chayim, but the halacha simply does not apply anymore because it was not stated for our era. Those who want more about this, and you can have a whole article on this, so that the Malbim and the Tosfos and a number of places. Right, so you may have made promises that were you know, binding in a certain situation. The situation changes, and your moral obligations may well change. So you, you then may be accused of being a hypocrite, but when the facts change, when the situation changes, you may very well need to move with the change. He says, He's following Tosos in a number of places uh, where they say, Hi, Idna, today it doesn't apply and to give the reason. Now it's true that other Rishonim often disagree. Okay, we got Matt Gates making his move to be Speaker of the House. Border security package that Republicans passed for the first time in our history. We didn't do it under Trump. We didn't do it at any point in the past. We did that. And we did that because of the work we did in January to get the Speaker to put conservatives in the right place. So I think Republicans need to learn how to take wins and then get another win with them. Well, That's but, what we're going to try to Chip, do right now. And I, yeah. Because your second plan was you were going to cut the federal bureaucracy by 30 percent. You were going to, except for defense, that would have gone up $28 billion. Except for veterans' benefits, that would have gone up $2.5 billion and the same to secure our border. Uh, and that would have been combined with H.R. 2, which is your border bill that would actually right. uh, seriously secure the border and fiscal responsibility and border security, I think, have got to be Republicans' top two priorities. That would have worked. Why didn't that pass? 
Well, you'll have to talk to the ones who voted against it. Look, the reason it didn't pass is because some people didn't want to have anything that continued moving in the direction of something like a continuing resolution. But here's my view. If you get cuts in place and if you get the Republican conference to rally around cutting spending and agreeing with the argument of no security, no funding, then we ought to stick with it. And so that's where I would have. Look, I am all down with uh, cutting government spending, particularly social welfare programs, but I, I don't think it's a winning platform for Republicans. Right. It had its moment with the Tea Party rebellion, but times have changed. Trump's agenda is not primarily about cutting social welfare spending. With Tosfos, but the Moblin follows the Tosfos perspective. And again, that's in the, uh, the Arts of Sahayim. Okay, so that's the Ruff's position, and uh, he advocated it, and then it's, uh, it wasn't just in high school. We saw in Stern College, uh, Talmud study, uh, advanced Talmud study, and this became pretty standard in the modern Orthodox uh, world. Uh, even in schools, that like the schools near me, where it's not uh, co-ed, they still uh, teach uh, women Talmud, not in every seminary in Israel. But the seminaries that don't, my sense is that it's because they don't think there's much of an interest. So you have the seminaries that do, the seminaries they don't, that don't. And that's become, um, yes, and with the, the problem that Rabbi Willock spoke about, that once you open up the bottle here, the genie's bottle, who knows where it's going to lead? And it might lead to places that things that uh, some people, even students of Solvatic, are not very happy about. But Of course, when you change, you know, traditions, right? When you change the rules, when you, when you change how you operate, you don't know the consequences. That's why conservatives are so fearful of changes to morality essentially, because you don't know what will be the consequences. And so, you know, those in, in traditional Orthodox Judaism, all right, they have, you know, very good reason to fear what happens when you start, you know, opening up Talmud study to women, right? Because this impulse largely comes from a non-Jewish and secular and liberal left perspective. It does not come out of the Torah tradition. But, uh, I, we don't know what the Rav would say if he was alive today. He might just say that that's, uh, you know, life is dangerous. It's full of dangers. Uh, but uh, we can't go back to the ghetto and uh, not teaching them Talmud is going to bring more dangers. Uh, they're going to abandon Judaism. They won't take it seriously. So uh, there's a lot to say about this. And believe me, many people have written on this issue. I don't need, I just wanted to tell you this short letter where the Rav, uh, in just a few lines, waxes eloquent about how vital this is. The next letter. Uh, pages 85 and on, deal with um, the creation of Yeshiva University's Albert Einstein Medical School. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think now it's not even, uh, although they, it, it's not controlled. So in the, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, doctors are the competing power center to church administrators because doctors are, they have a lot of secular education, they earn good money, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church is all about health reform message, so doctors get elevated. Also, doctors have a lot of prestige in Jewish life, so they are a competing power center as well in Jewish life to, to rabbis. So rabbis, like all professions, want to maximize power for themselves. They want to maximize prestige for themselves. They want to maximize income for themselves, and many of them want to maximize their access to attractive young women. Right? The more power, prestige and income you have, right, the more women you're going to sleep with, the more attractive women you're going to go to bed with, even if you're a holy Orthodox rabbi, all right, you're going to be much more uh, attractive to attractive young women, all right, if you've got more power, more prestige, and more money than otherwise. Oh, by YU, although it still is kosher and all the, uh, as far as I know, it still follows the rules that it was when it was controlled by YU, but it's not under YU, if I understand it correctly, it's not under YU's uh, control at all anymore. People can correct me if I'm wrong, but of course it was founded. And the question was, should YU have... So I think there's only one major university that doesn't take federal funds, and that's Hillsdale College. And by not taking federal funds, they get to say no to a lot of these you know, governmental, liberal, left, civil rights intrusions. But uh, Yeshiva University does take federal funds, so they have to have you know, allow a, a gay and lesbian club on campus, even though such a club is a complete anathema to Orthodox Judaism. Have a medical school. First of all, you can, the more general question is, what's the point? Why does Yeshiva University need a medical school? Why does it need a law school? It was founded as a college so people could study Talmud, Torah intensively, and also uh, um, have secular studies and be in a Jewish environment. Uh, and you go to Med uh, Cardozo or you go to Einstein, uh, I mean, is that really a Jewish environment? Do we need to uh, have all this money? So Cordoza refers to the law school at Yeshiva University. So Yeshiva University 
flagship modern Orthodox university in New York City. It has a medical school where many you know non-Jews attend, and it also has a law school. Uh, yes, you can take a course in uh, Judaism, but uh, is it really necessary? So that's one approach you could look at it. But uh, um, actually, and that's what the rub deals with. The, the question to him, which he dealt with, is that there are people in the Orthodox world, this is taking us back to the 50s, who thought that this is not something that Yeshiva University should get involved with. As it says, their role is to train, you know, to teach Torah, basically. <laughs> Why should we extend it to new? So it sounds wonderful, adding a medical school, adding a law school to an Orthodox Orthodox Jewish uh, university, but it comes with tremendous downsides. You are introducing secularism, modernity, you know, liberal left elite mores, which are frankly at war with Torah. New areas by establishing secular graduate and professional schools that have no direct connection with Torah. What's the point of it? Not only is it that then you could, you could raise other issues, obviously, you know, someone's going to give all this money to Einstein or Cardozo, that's maybe money that could go to the yeshiva. So what's the point of it? I have the same question when I think about Toro, everything Toro's doing. Well, how is that connect? I'm not talking about Lander College, but all the other schools. How, what does that have to do with Judaism? Uh, okay, so the Rav deals with this, and the Rav, uh, a very interesting essay. When it comes to uh, Cardozo, I'll get back, I'll say something interesting about Cardozo when I finish here. The Rav deals with a medical school, and he starts off by saying that, uh, listen, it wasn't given to, this is Dr. Belkin's plan, and he succeeded marvelously. Uh, he was a big dreamer, Dr. Belkin. Of course, it, uh, it created all sorts of problems for him because um, financially and, uh, I mean, lots of difficulties, almost bankrupted the school, but he was a great uh, builder. And uh, you couldn't say no uh, to him because uh, he had such a such a, a vision. Zerov says, I don't know what I would have said had I been consulted before they went ahead with this. I wasn't asked, and therefore, I'm not speaking to you, L'Chachila. That's going to be the Yavad. Now, you're going to see how strong the Rav is about the medical school. But he still says that doesn't mean I would have this opinion if you would ask me ahead of time. Wait, so Lichachila means beforehand, Bidiyavad means after. Because, like I said already, maybe uh, it's it, at the end of the day, maybe it's a big waste of money. The millions and millions of dollars it costs to raise could have been used better just strictly for Torah. And, uh, you know, uh, with all the stress on these, it could distract us. Obviously, in later years, you could say that we saw what happened with uh, the medical school and the law school as well, where you have a, a secular or non-Jewish uh, uh, student body and uh, I, as well as faculty and ideas are pushed that put yeshiva in a difficult position because you have clubs that are in direct opposition to the values of Yeshiva University. This is before, obviously, anyone can even imagine that in the very heart of Yeshiva University, you'd have these same clubs. But uh, those are other issues. But the Rav, now that they've established the medical school, the Rav says that, in his opinion, this will accomplish a great deal for Orthodox Jews. And uh, chat says, at an ethics school for the Hasidim. I I'm thinking an etiquette school, a, a menace school, a civility school for traditional Orthodox Jews who want to improve their relations with their fellow citizens of the United States who are not traditional Orthodox Jews. Jews in America provided the leadership. Yes, a charm score for Hasidim. I think this could be a big money maker. ...remains under religious control with Dr. Belkin at the helm. When Dr. Belkin is running it, he says, I have faith. And before we go further, let me just say that the big misconception that people have is that if you're in medical school, it's just like you're a doctor and you're saving lives. And, uh, you know, many people in medical school think that Shabbos doesn't matter and that Shabbos can be suspended because you're in future. Right. If you're in training to be a doctor, I, I got to imagine that just takes over your life and training to be a lawyer. But particularly doctor would be particularly intoxicating because, hey, you're, you're saving lives. And so it would feel particularly freeing from the strictures of Orthodox Judaism. So I would expect that, you know, the more dedicated one is to being a doctor, in all likelihood, the less dedicated one will be to one's religion. The more dedicated you are to being a live streamer, the less dedicated you'll be to your religion. The more dedicated you are to being a lawyer or a, an accountant or a journalist or a professor, in all likelihood, the less dedicated you'll be to your religion. For training to be a doctor. Now, obviously, you have to ask your post but I can tell you without fear of contradiction by any post the Chavez is not suspended, even if you're in medical school. And sometimes the things uh, you could do things, you could violate it. I mean, again, that's something you need to speak with Cole Postley about. But the idea that there is no such thing as Shabbos in medical school is obviously uh, a falsehood, a fallacy. And therefore, already you're going to see that uh, the idea that you could have a medical school, which is going to enable Jews um, who are observant to be in an environment that Shabbos is important, uh, that's going to be vital. So it's, it's a long. So I love what Tom Sowell says. There, there are no solutions in life. There are only trade-offs. So 
more dedicated you are to your practice of medicine, all right, it's going to take a strain in all likelihood on your practice of religion. So I want to revisit this excellent uh, Mark Shapiro talk at a later date. But uh, before I wind up for today, I heard a good segment from This American Life. Act three, Ode to Joy. There's this thing President Trump used to say before he got elected. It was part of his regular stump speech, kind of a rallying cry. We're going to start winning again. We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore, Mr. President. And without going into the merits of whether the president is getting tired of too much winning or whether it is, in fact, even possible to get tired of too much winning, our program today deals in some ways with advice. And I do think it's possible to get tired of too much advice. For someone to offer so much good advice that's so perfectly suited to you that at some point you decided just pains you to hear it. This is a smart, uh, high IQ show. I don't listen very often, but I'm told it's a smart, high IQ show. And there's some good stuff in this segment, but they really miss the boat. The regular host of our show, Ira Glass, heard of that happening to a friend of his. Here's Ira. The friend is my friend Lucy, and the person who gave her such good advice was not me, which, okay, I'm not hurt by that. I personally think the advice that Lucy and I give each other is excellent. Lucy can think what she wants. But when it comes to advice, I know that the person whose advice has been a consistent North Star in Lucy's life for like 15 years now is a professional advice giver, a psychologist on a call-in radio show who gives advice over the air, Dr. Joy Brown. Lucy says she likes Dr. Joy Brown because unlike some other radio psychologists that she's listened to in the past, Dr. Joy Brown doesn't smack her callers over the head with a frying pan and tell them what they're doing is wrong. Joy Brown is kind, but deeply pragmatic. And has a whole raft of principles and mottos that come up over and over, all of which Lucy has internalized, like stupid and cheerful. If somebody's trying to engage you in some sort of passive-aggressive issue, you just try to be as stupid and cheerful as possible. So, like, if somebody comes into your kitchen and is like, oh, you're painting it this color, you just go like, yep, isn't it great? Oh. You know, mm -hmm. stupid and cheerful. It really works. My dear, this is one of those times that you're going to have to be stupid and cheerful. This goes to the doctor herself, talking to a 23-year-old woman named Michelle. This is excellent advice. It's stupid and cheerful. Okay, well... Will help you navigate many an awkward interaction. Who lives with her mom? Who explains to Dr. Joy Brown that she's ready to move out? Yeah. The difficulty is, is that she suffers from mental illness and she's severely depressed and she gets like verbally abusive and she yells and. But I need to leave. Okay. How old is mom? Dr. Joy Brown runs through a quick series of questions and ascertains that the mom is 55, not working, single, under therapist care, on meds. And then she pivots to her advice, stupid and cheerful. Equal emphasis on stupid and cheerful. If you go into your mom and say, Mom, I know this is going to really upset you, um, but it's time for me to leave. If you sort of deal with the subtext, ooh, you're abandoning me, I can't believe you're doing this, it, you're lost, and so is she. It's not like it benefits either of you. So I know almost nothing about Dr. Joy Brown, but the little I'm learning in this segment, it seems like good advice. Uh, it's not something that I would become obsessed with. I can't imagine becoming obsessed with uh, Dr. Joy Brown, but 99% uh, of people couldn't imagine becoming obsessed with Dennis Prager, and that's what happened to me for decades. Do that. Just be stupid and cheerful. Okay. What you need to say is, Mom, you know what? I, it's, uh, I found this great apartment. Will you come and help me find some furniture? And what you're going to have to do is decide that you're going to win the Merle Streep Award for Brooklyn, all right? And you're going to say, Mom, I'm so excited. And you're going to have to be stupid about the fact that this may be traumatic for her. But okay. it's not your responsibility to take care of your mom at this stage in your life. You could kind of show up on the phone with whatever kind of messy, emotional or non-emotional, trivial or not trivial problem and you hand her the Rubik's Cube of that, and she would sort of ask a few questions and hand it back to you, all put together with the, all the colors on the right side. Mom's got to learn to take care of herself. Okay. All righty. Stupid, honey. Stupid and cheerful. Stupid and cheerful. Stupid and cheerful. All right? <laughs> all right. Lucy likes how encouraging Dr. Joy Brown always is. And kind of good-humored. And she's listened to her for thousands of hours, first on the radio, then on podcast, 
The show is three hours every day. And Dr. Joy Brown has such a whole... So why are there so many Jewish talk show hosts like uh, Dr. Joy Brown? I think one key reason is that Jews tend to feel really good about themselves. And I've never met a, a Jew who feels burdened by sin. Right? Normally, you give a Jew a compliment, and they will appreciate it and say thank you. And often they'll you know, ask for, for more. Right? You try to give a Protestant, traditional Protestant, a compliment, they'll say, hey, no, not me, not me, 40. I'm a great sinner. Right? I, I grew up something I'd read as a lot of people around me were just burdened by sin. They, they didn't tend to feel great about themselves. Jews tend to have a very you know, high self-esteem. Lucy's thinking, and over her heart, that Lucy will say things like, Well, you know, we didn't always agree on everything, but, but mostly. The phrase, we didn't agree about everything, <laughs> implies that like she was in on this relationship, too. Well, sort of, although we didn't agree on everything. You know, she, she had some beliefs that I didn't believe in. No, she just again, didn't know. There's no we. I guess you're right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I go, the look in your face, I feel like I said that and your feelings looked really hurt and I suddenly felt sort of bad. No, don't feel bad. I mean, um, I guess my relationship with Dr. Joy Brown is at the intersection of incredibly light-hearted and really, really deep-seated and emotional for me. So this is the missing part of this segment. They should have explored the nature of parasocial relationships. Why did Ira Glass's friend Lucy, why was she obsessed with Dr. Joy Brown? Why was I obsessed with Dennis Prager? It's because broken people like me, like Lucy, we encounter often public figures who make us feel better, make us feel whole who we just feel like, oh, if we could just you know, listen more to them or be more like them, that we could overcome our problems and become normal. And this is the fertile ground that this segment completely misses out on. Why? It's not accidental that she became obsessed with Joy Brown. Like healthy people don't become obsessed with radio psychologists like Joy Brown or Dennis Prager, right? It's a symptom, right? Most of our problems or most of our issues all right, as symptoms of much deeper problems and issues that we don't want to look at, so we just get obsessed with the symptom. Like a radio call-in show, psychologist, you know, it's low stakes, right? Except for it's not really, because people call in with real problems. And, and so with her, the relationship sits right in the middle of being... So 99% of people can listen to Joy Brown and not become obsessed with Joy Brown. 99% of people can listen to Dennis Prager not become obsessed with Dennis Prager. 99.99% of people can listen to Luke Ford and not become obsessed with Luke Ford. If, if you become obsessed with some you know, public figure who does a live stream or a podcast or a news radio show, that's because there's something incredibly broken in you and their presence, their, your, your parasocial relationship with this person fills an incredible void in your soul. But that's only... A delusion, all right? You still have a lot of very difficult internal rearrangement work to fill the hole in your soul so that you don't go you know, down this route unexamined. So I have a problem. <laughs> I speak too frankly. And so it, it can be very painful on Shabbat. It can be very painful on Jewish holidays when I see what seems like all my friends going somewhere and I am not invited. And it can be particularly painful if I used to be invited and was invited for years, but am no longer invited. But there's a very good reason why I'm no longer invited. It's because the last time I was at this place, I made a complete ass of myself. I hurt people. I bothered people. I involuntarily insulted people. I, you know, I tarnished what they held sacred. I was just a jerk and I had no idea. I was just feeling happy and making jokes, but my jokes were deeply painful and hurtful to other people. And I do this again and again and again and again. And so a normal person might say, well, just stop doing this. All right. But 
I, I do this because it comes out of probably my greatest character flaw, lack of consideration for other people and, and for myself. Right? I showed a lack of consideration for my own well-being by repeatedly making you know, inappropriate jokes at places that should be sacred and precious to me. But I, I blow up these relationships and cordial you know, arrangements again and again and again and again by saying you know, carelessly cruel, cutting remarks. But why do I do this, right? It's the, the character defect, yeah, of lack of consideration. But then what's underneath that character defect of lack of consideration? And what's underneath that are gaping psychic wounds from essentially growing up for years without a mother and looking to fill that hole in my soul, that void in my psyche by getting attention. And so I have developed as an attention-seeking missile. And so I just toss things off without you know, even thinking about the consequences, what I'm doing, without thinking about the consequences to my own well-being, let alone other people. But you know, just trying to address these careless remarks is not going to cut it. Right? And just trying to address the character defect that they come out of, lack of consideration for myself and others, that's not going to get it done. That's so tempting to just you know, go at that surface level, go a layer deeper. But what's going on is that I have to address the gaping hole in my soul. Right? I w- walk around often with gaping psychic wounds that are just bleeding all over the place. And the way I've learned to live my life is by distracting myself from these gaping wounds. So imagine you're walking down the street and someone's walking down the street beside you and they keep trying to make you laugh because that distracts them from all the blood that's like pouring out of their side. You would not find that tasteful, right? You would find that disturbing and troubling. And you might say to that person, hey, you need to go to the hospital. Let me call 911 right now. You've got a gaping wound. And what if the person was like me and they said, oh, now I'm fine. You know, really, all I need you to do is laugh at my jokes and then I'll be able to ignore my gaping psychic wound. So I'm 57 years of age and I've spent probably, you know, 52 years going through life, trying to get people to laugh at my jokes so that I could then be distracted from all the blood that's pouring out of me, you know, on the ground and splashing and, and you know, just making a mess everywhere I go. So unless I address that this this gaping psychic wound, this this hole in my soul that's just pouring out, you know, my 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 blood over everybody and everything that I touch, I, nothing's gonna get it done. And so I have to achieve an internal rearrangement of myself so that I feel at ease with myself, that uh, I, I basically feel okay between me and God, between me and reality, between me and myself and my closest friends. Because when I'm at ease with myself, right, I don't need to act out to get unnecessary amounts of attention or you know, maladaptive amounts of attention. When I can calm down, be at ease with myself, when I can staunch those psychic wounds, right, then I can be calm and I can be vulnerable. I tend to go through life with a cynical, hard, cutting exterior and i use my you know verbal judo abilities to put people down and to make fun of them and to taunt them and to wound them because that distracts me from my gaping psychic wounds but that's not an adaptive path for for me to go through life right now i i found methods and, and techniques and and practices and communities and, and people that enable me to calm down and staunch my psychic wounds. But there's no, so far at age 57, there's no permanent solution to them, right? Unless I pay attention to them and deal with them through prayer, through meditation, through 12-step work, through having sponsees, through journaling, all right? Uh, through maybe psychotherapy has helped, right? Unless I deal with them and calm down and, you know, rearrange what, what's going on inside of me so the blood stops pouring out, I can't help but make an ass of myself on a regular basis, thus isolating myself so that I spend a great deal of time doing live streams because I have sabotaged and destroyed and pissed on and urinated all over and blown up and destroyed what should be normal, healthy human relationships. And this is what's going on with Ira Glass's friend Lucy as well, 
who's become obsessed with Dr. Joy Brown. I'm kind of like a joke and being like a super serious part of my <laughs> psyche, you know? Yeah. Lucy is so in tune with what Dr. Joy Brown would say in any situation that sometimes when friends and family turn to her for advice, she just doles out whatever she thinks Dr. Joy Brown would say. Like when her aunt was in a relationship where... She- so I would go to Dennis Prager talks and... There'd be 40 people crowded around Dennis Prager, and they'd all want to get their answer, you know, their question answered. Or even during public question and answer periods for Dennis Prager, Dennis would sometimes say, oh, Luke knows the answer to this, because I so knew Dennis Prager's thought. And so I was always willing to dispense to people, you know, what Dennis Prager thought about this or that, because I knew him so thoroughly. But why the hell was I so obsessed with, with Dennis Prager? Because it distracted me from all the blood that was pouring out of my soul. She was not getting what she wanted, very unhappy, feeling awful. And I said to her that, um, you know, think about what the relationship is like now. Think if you knew you were never going to get any more than this and you were never going to get any less than this out of the situation. Would you stay or go? And if you would go, how long would you wait before you go? That's straight up Dr. Joy Brown. Mm-hmm. And my aunt thought that that was really stellar advice and it really helped her. And then I had to admit to her that I had gotten it from someone else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, I have to go tend to my gaping psychic wounds. Bye-bye.